Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name is Dan, and whether you've meant to or not, you've stumbled upon the smartest show in the history of the universe. There's been a lot of shows, been a lot of podcasts in the history of the universe, but this is the best one ever. Thank you for being there. Thank you for listening. This week in our tour of the galaxy where we uncover all the science secrets you can hear all about ancient art and whether our ancestors used to watch movies just like us and we found because the light isn't static like a light bulb would give you a static light um, a naked light source like a fire or a candle the light flickers and moves around because the engravings give you a negative space so they cut into the material it means when light casts across the surface it creates also we'll head to deep space high to find out how experts learn how old things are using something radioactive it's done by looking at some of the tiniest particles in the atoms of rocks it's called radioactivity dating sounds kind of complicated it is but there's a simple way to explain it Let's pop over to Greenland. It's nice and snowy there, and I fancy building a snowman. And I've got your questions to answer. As always, this week they are on turtle shells and unbreakable diamonds. It's all on the way in a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. First up this week, let's crack on with our science in the news. Scientists have made the most precise map ever of the seabed underneath Antarctica. That's the South Pole. It covers 185 million square miles, and it's the first time they've ever mapped the deepest point down there. It's called Factorian Deep. It is seven and a half thousand meters underwater, and they've made this huge map to help understand the way that the Earth is changing and to help people get around. Also, Sir David Attenborough. We like Sir David. He's been made a Knight of the Grand Cross for his work on conservation. Now, it's a huge honour that's been awarded by the Prince of Wales, Prince Charles. There are very few Knights of the Grand Crosses, so this is a big deal. Sir David picked up his medal at Windsor Castle. And also a litter of four red squirrel kittens have been introduced to a park in the UK. They're thought to be 10 weeks old. This is a very big deal. Red squirrel numbers are down in the UK because grey ones are all over the place taking their food and habitats. So more of the red ones is big news. It's time to catch up with Professor Hallux now. This is from his Map of Medicine series that we've been listening to on the show for the last few weeks, where he's looking inside your body at what makes you ill and what and who makes you better again and the medicine that they use to make you feel tip-top. Now, in this series, we've looked inside your nose, inside your throat. We've looked at your feet. We've looked at your arms. We've looked at your lugs. We've looked at your heart. This week... It's all about ears and hearing. Professor Hallux's Map of Medicine. Professor, can you get that? I'm just polishing the Petri dishes. Professor, there's someone at the door. There's something on the floor. No, there isn't. Can't you hear? It's the doorbell. There's a bad smell. It's not that bad. I think you might have something up with your hearing, Professor. Oh, they've gone. 
Something up with my earrings? I'm not wearing earrings, and you should know that jewellery isn't a good idea in a science lab. You're hearing, you daft clot. Look, give me that map of medicine. I'll give you a clue. Now, where's the right bit? Oh, here we go. Look, there. Ears. Your ears. Oh, I see. Something up with my hearing? Well, yes, you could be right. I went to the science swimming gala yesterday and everything's certainly a bit muffly today. Well done to check out the map of medicine, nurse. I've got an awesome audiologist in here. Ear, ear, nurse. What facts have you got for us on hearing? Do you get the joke? Ear, ear. <gasps> yes, very funny. <laughs> Clinical crunch. Whoops. So, hearing. It can be hard to tell if you have got a problem with your hearing or if you're just not paying attention. Hearing is really important because like the professor and me just now, if someone can't hear, communication can be difficult. Often hearing loss is caused by problems with the eustachian tube. This special tube acts like a drain pipe between the middle ear and the back of the nose. It's this tube you can feel air go up when you feel your ears pop. Trouble is, because it's so small, it's easily blocked and sometimes this gives you earache and can make it difficult to hear. If water, gloopy wax or an infection is causing the problem in the tube, it may get better by itself or with a little medicine. Other times, hearing problems are caused by more complicated problems. That's when we need our ear experts, Prof. I said, that's when we need... It's OK, I got that. I was lip-reading you there. Right, let's load up the map of medicine and find out more about the medical heroes of hearing. Opening the map of medicine. If you have trouble hearing, you might want to see your GP or an ear, nose and throat specialist. The first thing they will do is have a good look inside your ear with an otoscope. It's a bit like a pen with a pointy microscope on the top which a doctor places in your ear to have a really good look inside. If he can see daylight, it means you haven't got a brain, and that's a lot more serious. OK, I made that last bit up. After looking around your ear, the doctor might suggest you visit an audiologist to carry out some tests, which are done in a soundproof room. This is so no one outside can hear your screams. Sorry. Just another joke there. It's soundproof so you can concentrate on the tests, some of which involve very quiet noises. He'll put some headphones on you, but don't get excited. You're not about to hear a load of really cool tunes. Not unless this is your idea of a cool tune. Not likely to get you dancing, is it? The beeps are made by an audiometer, which produces sounds at different volumes and frequencies. That's a bit more rocking. OK, it isn't. It's rubbish for a pop tune, but really, really good for seeing exactly what sorts of noises you can and can't hear. Every time you hear a sound, you press a button to show you've heard. Each ear is tested separately. You'll soon get the hang of it. Another great test is tympanometry, which is where the audiologist gets a big tin pan and bashes you over the head with it. Professor, stop messing about. OK, OK. 
he doesn't hit you over the head with anything. Tympanometry is a way of checking how your eardrum moves, and it can also see if you have anything gloopy blocking your middle ear. The gloop could be waxy or lumpy or maybe like that watery snot you get in the back of your throat when you have a cold. Charming. Whatever it is, it's absolutely no help in your ear because it can make things sound rather muffled, like when you get water in your ears at the pool. If everything looks okay with your ear, but you still can't hear, the audiologist might check the nerves that take the sound signals to your brain. For this, he'll place stickers on your scalp which are connected to a computer. It might look like the audiologist is trying to read your mind. But it's just to check that the messages are being passed along okay, and even though it sounds a bit weird, it doesn't hurt. At most, the stickers might tickle a bit. That's all. Okay, not as much fun as riding on your bike or sitting down with a massive bowl of chalky ice cream. But they're really not difficult and they shouldn't hurt a bit. Have we got time for a disgusting detail, nurse, before we go? Oh, go on. I've got a really icky, sticky one. Disgusting detail. You know your mum tells you never to put things in your ears? Well, here's why. A British man had hearing problems for 33 years until a nurse removed an object from his ear and was astonished to find that it was a tooth. One of his baby teeth, in fact, which he must have pushed in when he was a child all those years ago. Yuck. I wonder if the tooth fairy paid up for that one. Time for us to go, but remember to explore Map of Medicine for yourself. Alex's Map of Medicine is produced by Fun Kids with support from the Wellcome Trust. Let's get to your questions then. If you've got anything sciencey on the show, let me know. I answer your questions every single week. The easiest way to tell me is by leaving it as a review over on Apple Podcasts. Give a quick search for the Fun Kids Science Weekly while you're there. There's a little comment box at the bottom when you click on us. That's where you leave your question. Give us five stars so I can see it and your name really helps me say hello. First one this week is from someone who has called themselves Fun Person. Who wants to know, what's a turtle shell made of? Turtle shells are made of large, hard scales. They're called scoots. Now, most have about 13 that make their top shell. They fit together like a jigsaw, and they're made out of bone. It's part of their skeleton. It's not like they look a bit like a lizard that's just slid into a bony, shelly home. It's actually part of their skeleton. Now, this bone is then covered in a layer of keratin. Uh, Keratin is a protein, and it also makes your hair, your skin, your nails, and it gives that extra bit of strength to a turtle shell there, fun person. Thank you for the question. Also this week, here is something from Charlie. Why are diamonds unbreakable? Well, technically, diamonds aren't properly unbreakable even though their name comes from an old word that means unbreakable it's all very confusing but you can slightly break them apart you need to be very strong though because diamonds are the hardest thing in the world they are made out of one element a single element they are carbon one of the most simple elements in the world and all that carbon is pushed together it's squashed and squeezed deep underground where it gets pushed and driven together by the weight and the pressure of everything that's all around it and that makes it very strong it makes it very compact and because those bonds in there are so tight 
it's very hard to break apart. It's not completely unbreakable, though, Charlie, because uh, think about it. Maybe you, your mum, your dad has some diamonds. Well, they've got to come from somewhere. They've got to be broken off. A bigger diamond. They've got to be found from the ground. Uh, and if you can't break apart diamonds, you wouldn't be able to buy them. But you can. That means you can slightly break apart the diamonds there, Charlie. Thank you for the question. If there's something you would like answered next week on the show, you got to leave it as a review for me on Apple Podcasts. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. This week, we're looking at something that might be the world's oldest movies. I don't know. Have a think. We'll find out more with Dr. Andy Needham, who joins us. Andy, thank you for being there. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to join you. Thanks for having me. So just, there's a lot to this. So take us through when you first heard of the art and why you decided to look into it. Yeah. So what I do is I look at really old pieces of art. So they're thousands and thousands of years old and they usually have pictures on them that people have drawn things like animals um, but quite different animals to what we might see you know we were to go for a walk in the park today they're things like bison and horses so maybe some more recognizable ones there Um, but also types of goats and this sort of thing Um, and they're really interesting because people probably use stone tools to engrave into stone. So a little bit different to how we might say make a picture at home if we were to paint or maybe we use our colored pencils or something like that. These they're using a very different type of approach to their uh, pictures. So I was really curious about the relationship between the thing that they are drawing, in this case animals, how they do that and the environment that they work in. So we think, based on some of this, the different details in the objects that they've made, that maybe they're doing this at night, and this might be quite a dramatic way to make art. So these would have been on cave walls, yeah? So there are two types. One is deep within caves that would have been really dark, dramatic places. They wouldn't have had lights like you and I have today. They won't be able to just switch on the light and you know, electricity gives you that immediate light and it's stable. They would have been working by candlelight or by firelight. So it's really interesting that they choose to go into these deep, dark caves to express themselves and to make art. The other type is what we call portable art. And all we mean by that is art that you can move around. And these are much smaller, and they're little pieces of rock, typically. Sometimes they're pieces of bone, um, but they, they make much the same thing. Usually they're paintings or engravings of animals. So uh, they either use things like ochre, which is a type of mineral pigment, to, uh, to make paint. Usually that's red. That gives you a red color. Or the charcoal from a fire gives you a black color. So they would have had different colors they could use. And then they use a sharp piece of flint, a sharp um, flint tool, and that can engrave into soft rock. And that can be used to give you a different type of artistic effect. So almost if you pressed really hard with your colored pencil, that leaves a bit of an indentation in your paper. That's kind of a bit similar to engraving. So this is over 14,000 years ago. Now, Andy, I don't know if if you could ever know this, but do you and and other experts in this field think that this was all kept separately? So maybe one family had their cave where they made their art or much like we have, 
you know, art galleries today where you hang your nice pictures up and people come and see it. Was, would that have been a thing that happened back in caveman times that you would have had people from around the village come in to see what art you had up? That's such an interesting question, Dan. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's, it's as you're right, it's really a challenging question for us to answer because as archaeologists, we're really working with the stones and bones that are left behind and have been preserved in the ground over hundreds, sometimes thousands of years. And we're not really lucky enough to, to be able to ask the people what they thought and felt about what they were doing. So we're only working indirectly. We're always working with the available evidence and trying to ask questions from that. So we always have to be careful with the types of interpretations that we make of that. We're always so here as a as a scientist here as an archaeologist, I have to be quite careful uh, in in how confident I am with my interpretation. There's always going to be a lot of doubt because we can't ask people. You know, like I could maybe you know ask you what you had for breakfast this morning, and you can give me the answer. But I can't ask people thousands of years ago. So. So I have to use what traces are left behind, the stones, the bones, and, and so on. With that said, what we can do is analyze the sites that people occupied, the um, debris that's left behind, and we can get a sense of how many people might have been there. If it was intensely occupied, is there a lot of stuff? Or was it quite sparsely occupied? Was it only very fleetingly occupied for a short amount of time? And what we can say from this is it's quite common that a lot of these sites where you find art were occupied again and again. They would come back. And people thousands of years ago moved around a lot. So you're living off the land. You're uh, living by what you can hunt and what you can gather. So we tend to call them hunter-gatherers. Um, and they're living off the land, really. So as you can imagine, you need to move around, chase game. You need to um, move as the climate changes or the environment changes. Um, and so they never stay in, in too many places for too long, but they are coming back to places, and they're quite important places when they do come back. And we think these are probably where you are likely to find art. So it tends to be around sites where they come back again and again. And, and the, the site that I analysed was one of those where it's had thousands of years of occupation, but many different events over a huge amount of time. So they just keep coming back again and again and again. And that uh, debris builds up on top of itself time after time after time. So you get a really big deposit of material to look at. So, yeah, we can sort of start to tell. And we can tell based on burning evidence in the ground. So as you can imagine, you set a, a small hearth um, for, for light and for heat. That leaves a, a, a discoloration on the ground. And if we're lucky, that can survive for thousands of years. And that can give us a clue about where people may have um, lit their fires, where they may have sat around, where they may have talked and chatted. And it looks as if there's an association with this type of art and those sorts of places. So you might say it's maybe a bit of a, a social activity. They sit around, they gather around by the fire and they start to make stuff. And you've made a, a discovery that maybe what the art they were making was was perhaps doing more than you first thought. That, that they were almost making moving pictures. Can you tell us more? Of course, yeah. So this we found really exciting. So of course, uh, one way to try and understand why people may have done what they did thousands of years ago is to have a go yourself. And we call this experimental archaeology. So I got together with some of my colleagues and we tried to make some of the art in the way it would have been made thousands of years ago, using limestone as the material and then stone tools to engrave. We placed it next to the fire, which is what we think they were doing thousands of years ago. And we found because the light isn't static, like a light bulb would give you a static light, um, a naked light source like a fire or a candle, the light flickers and moves around. 
Because the engravings give you a negative space, so they cut into the material, it means when light casts across the surface, it creates shadows. This gives the impression that the animals that have been engraved are moving around. Stack lots of different animals together and blend animals together on these surfaces. And when you take all those things together, it looks as if the animals are moving around, they maybe move from sitting to standing, or they appear like they're in movement. Yeah, so very much like your very first take on the movies, maybe. Uh, Andy, just stepping away from the art, while I've got you, you said that uh, these hunter-gatherer communities back then would have moved around with the seasons, but often would have come back to places they had been before. Uh, How would they have remembered where they had been? Uh, Like, How how would they have uh, made maps almost of of, uh, places where they could go and where they wanted to stay away from? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah. So I sort of see it a little bit like, do you know, like when you're walking around in your hometown um, and you've grown up there all of your life and, um, you know, if you're going to somewhere unfamiliar, maybe you need to get your phone out and you need to check where you're going and you get a map and you check the directions. But if it's a route that you've used a lot, you don't really need to think so much about where you're going. You kind of just remember and you kind of know where you're going, right? So I wonder if it's a little bit like this, but on a much bigger scale, that you move around, you follow animals, you uh, search out new environments, but you hold in your memory, that might be your collective memory with the rest of your community, where there were good places. And as the seasons change, you remember and think back to where was good to hunt, where was good for particular resources to gather and things like that. So I wonder if it's actually a quite familiar thing we experience every day where you don't have to think too hard about, you know, getting to work every day or going to school every day. You remember the route, but on a, a much grander scale and maybe over bigger time periods, maybe something like that. Amazing. Well, it's been such a treat. Andy Needham, thank you for joining us. Absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. It's time for this week's Dangerous Dan, where we look at the most mean and evil things in the universe throughout history. This week, it's about an ancient, terrifying beast. The Dinosuchus is an old, 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 old relative of the crocodiles and alligators that we have today. Now, its name, Dinosuchus, means terrible crocodile. So imagine a crocodile... This is even worse. It's a more terrible version. And it lived around 80 million years ago, and they were huge. They were about 35 foot long, which is about the length of a bus. Now, they were thought to have been covered in hard scales. They had a long thrashing tail, too. Now, it's their teeth where things really get scary. Their teeth were the size of bananas. Crocodiles today, they hunt birds or fish. Crocodiles back then, Dinosuchus, it hunted thick, Shelly turtles and even actual dinosaurs. If one of those came too close to the water's edge, it was an absolute goner. Now, also, they had this really big snout at the front of their mouths with holes in it, and experts think that those holes were a place to put their teeth because their teeth were too big for their jaws, so some actually poked through their skin through the top of their nose. And for me, if your teeth are too big for your mouth, like Dinosuchus, then you've got to go straight on to our Dangerous Dan list. Let's head to the smartest school in the solar system then. We're headed to Deep Space High right now for another episode from the Earthwatch series. For the last few weeks, we've been getting lessons from Professor Pulsar, who's been looking down on Earth from his classroom in space and teaching us about things that he can see. This week, it's all about what radioactive dating is. 
and how it can help us. Deep Space High, Earthwatch, with support from the Royal Astronomical Society. So the Earth was created about 4.5 billion years ago, right? That's right. And so was Mars. Yep, Mars, Mercury, Venus, in fact all the other planets in our solar system. Give or take a millennia. And our sun. Yes, Sam. Everything in the solar system was made around the same time. Four and a half billion years ago. But what I don't get is how we know. I mean, humans weren't there. Nothing was there. It would have just been, well, a big swirling mass of dust clumping into balls. Sounds like the dust under your bed. Hey, I cleaned my room last week. All right, but haven't you learned anything, Sam? There's an incredible amount we can tell just by observing stuff. I still don't get it. Even if you observe, I don't know, all the oceans, mountains, volcanoes and clouds, where does it say 4.5 billion years old? Well, the sort of dating you're talking about isn't done by looking at massive things like oceans and mountains. It's done by looking at some of the tiniest particles in the atoms of rocks. It's called radioactivity dating. Sounds kind of complicated. It is, but there's a simple way to explain it. Let's pop over to Greenland. It's nice and snowy there, and I fancy building a snowman. Um, couldn't you find an example somewhere hot? Pay attention. Now look here. We have two snowmen. Just using powers of observation, can you tell which is the oldest? Well, one is still very round and tall. He's still got his hat on. The other one has started to melt a bit. Yep, I can see he's in a puddle of water. Obviously, the melted one is the oldest one. And you can tell because of many things, like snowmen begin to fall apart as time goes on. So, it's same inside rocks? You got it. If you were to go inside the atoms of rocks with very powerful microscopes, you'd be able to see that tiny elements, particularly uranium, have also begun to break down. It's called radioactive decay. The amount of decay shows us how old the rock is. OK, that tells us how old Earth is, but what about the rest of the solar system? You're forgetting about all the meteorites, lumps of rock flying around the solar system. Plenty of them land on our planet, and we know that everyone is the same age. All thanks to radioactivity dating. I think I'd be more thankful for a big woolly jumper. Fair enough. Let's get radioactive and get out of here. Deep Space High. Earthwatch. With support from the Royal Astronomical Society. Find out more at funkidslive.com slash deepspacehigh. And that is it for this week's Fun Kids Science Weekly. Thank you so much for listening to the show. If you've enjoyed what we do and if you'd love to ask a question, please do. I really want to hear from you. I want to hear that science problem rattling around your brain. The easiest way is to leave it as a review for me over on Apple Podcasts. While you're there, you can find loads of brilliant podcasts that we make on science, on history, on books, on loads of different stuff. You can find them there on Google, Spotify, wherever you get your shows and on the free Fun Kids app. And Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station from the UK. Listen to us all over the country on your DAB digital radio and over at funkidslive.com.